All right, everyone. Welcome to Magnifying God. I'm your host, Adam Michael, and we have been on quite a journey. We've been unpacking Prepare to Overcome, which is a book that's been published, and it has been amazing to walk through part one. Part one was Preparing the Saints or Equipping the Saints, and it was actually made into a workbook many years ago, and then it was made into this book. It was that part one of the book, and We now move to part two, and part two is the royal priesthood, the royal priesthood. And we knocked out chapter 12, which was the priest of God. And it was actually in two parts, part one and part two, because that's how extensive it was to go through it. And now we turn to chapter 13. Now, chapter 13 in part two, which is the royal priesthood, it's titled the Oracle of God, the Throne of God and the Garden of God. And we are going to pick right up with Debbie Simpson, who's going to be explaining the Oracle of God, the Throne of God, and the Garden of God. And I also believe she's going to be talking specifically about getting beyond the veil, going beyond the veil, and what that actually means. Debbie, are you with us? Yes, I am. Good morning, Adam. Uh, Good morning. Yes. Uh, And I am really looking forward to hearing uh, about this chapter and what it entails. So feel free to uh, take it away. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, Yes, we're going to continue to build on the foundation stone that was laid with regards to the sanctity of God and the priesthood and how we had talked about this being part of the foundation of the word of God and how it um, is being reestablished and rebuilt up by God. And as we were talking yesterday, as part of this whole foundation stone that is being laid up, it is sometimes things that we've not really um, heard before. And so, um, but it does fill, uh, excuse me, fit well into the scriptures as God begins to restore the broken foundations and the rebuilding of the um, the ancient ruins. And we talked about that in the last podcast, but um, as we go forward today, we're going to be continue to build upon um, those, the, two, the two new issues that, like for me, as I was beginning to grow up into this, they were only new into the depth and the breadth of the understanding of really what the sanctity of God uh, meant and what it meant also to be a priest. The tabernacle pictures heavenly realities of levels of glory and the believer's position in the kingdom. The priestly qualifications reveal really why these, the, the qualifications themselves reveal why the qualifications, because they reflect the reality of the sanctity of God. The goal of every believer is the oracle of God. That is the that that is the place of greatest intimacy. Okay, so this oracle, upon deeper study, is revealed to be synonymous with the throne of God and the garden of God, and that was what was being um, established through the scriptures in this chapter of the book. So what we see to recap. We talked about it yesterday, the oracle of God, and it began in First Peter 4.11, whoever speaks, 
let him speak as it were the utterance or the oracle of God. And we see that John even in his writings attested to Jesus's um, walking in this manner. He says, for I do not speak of my own initiative, but the father himself who sent me and has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. Therefore I speak, I speak just as the father has told me. And then we're reminded in 1 John 4, 17, that as he is, so are we in this world. So um, <clears throat> as we have gone through and discussed Oracle, this is the Oracle of God, and the, the name of this chamber reflects and describes its purpose. So we talked about the Rima word of God. The Rima is defined as that which has been uttered by a living thing. We talked about the spirit of God. It's a, he is a life-giving spirit that communicates God's counsel. We saw that the definition of communication, which is what the Holy Spirit does, he communicates. Um, that's the disclosure or to impart, exchange information through a mutually understood means. So we see here that um, the New Testament admonition to speak as an oracle of God was established after the Old Testament pattern in the most holy place where we see God communicating to his his priests through the Yumim and the Thummim, as well as their understanding of the Torah, the law of God, represented by the stone tablets. So both were working in conjunction in the oracle the, that bearing witness that the purpose of the oracle was for a communication. This pattern um, that we see reflected here is that the Logos word is written on the, um, the hearts of the flesh, and the Rima word is a spoken word of God communicating to the spirit of man. The oracle of God, or the most holy place, was so named because that was its function. So then we move on to the throne of God. So in addition to it being the oracle um, to that, and also of great significance, was the perception by the Old Testament people of God who had a biblical worldview that the Holy of Holies was indeed the throne room of God on earth. So as you go back and study the, the rebuilding of the temple or anything that was written in Old Testament, they had the worldview and the understanding that this was the very throne room of God. This is the place where divine decrees were handed down to the ministers of God, and they carried the full weight of the authority of God and the expectation that they would be executed on his behalf by his appointed representative. Why? Well, to execute the business of the kingdom. We touched on this in the first section with regards to the kingdom of God and how it's got it's a kingdom with a governance and the governance has jurisdiction and it's it serves a purpose it expands its territory and it 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 establishes its domain and all of this is done through the representatives of the king. So there is this this um, this idea of communication and there's this idea of ruling. So what we see here is that the throne of God in heaven. Is pictured in Ezekiel's vision. We saw that in Ezekiel 1. And that's where the Lord is seated upon his, his, his throne and the train of his robe fills 
you know, the temple with glory. That's Ezekiel 1. And the temple that was built by Solomon after this pattern, okay? So this is what we see here, that in this vision, it depicts that these cherubim are directly connected to the ark, testifying that it's God's intention that the oracle or the tabernacle service is thrown room on earth. As you go through by what I'm trying to express here is when you go through the Old Testament, everywhere you see the throne of God, you see the cherubim. They're there together. So the cherubim um, are connected with the throne, and we see the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant in the oracle, again, picturing the heavenly truth that this is indeed the throne of God, and the cherubim are present, okay? So we see in the Old Testament that the cherubim and the throne of God appear together, and it's upon these most holy creatures that the throne of God rests. So that's the understanding, and that's why when these cherubim were put upon the ark, it totally made sense to these Old Testament people of God that this was his throne room. But in addition to the throne of God, it was also understood that the oracle and the temple, this was the temple of God, the entire temple, this was the garden of God. So the significance of the garden is best understood when we recognize that the oracle, the most holy place, was known not only to be the throne room of God, but his garden as well. So, and, and why is it significant? Well, because the biblical students today, very, very I would say, um, can, this can be reasonably stated, that they view, we view, we all view, the Garden of Eden's primary purpose as being the first dwelling place of man on earth. You ask anybody, what was the Garden of Eden? Oh, that's where Adam and Eve lived. That was, you know, the, the, that's what, that was the dwelling place of Adam and Eve. But the description of Eden, this, this description of Eden deflects your attention away from, from Eden's primary purpose, her primary status. Eden was God's home on earth. And what was commonly understood to the Old Testament Jew with the biblical worldview was that where the king lived, his council met, and it was from there that his government would flow. And this is developed more in the you know, this section in the book. So I'm just trying to touch on it in the podcast to make sure that we have um, – you know, uh, a, a step up, an understandable foundation. How does all this relate and why is it important? So um, in the biblical worldview, deities and their councils were considered to live in tents on top of their mountains. And they lived in these lush gardens. And it was from these lush, beautiful gardens that they would execute rulership over their domains. And so if you go back and you read in First Kings, the description of the temple, and this is all in the book. I mean, everything there, it was, everything was carved into, this was a leaf, this was a gourd, this was a lily, these were almond trees, these were almond blossoms. There was all the stonework in the temple was covered. So there were no stones seen because in a garden, you wouldn't have these stumbling stones. The stones would be removed. So, you know, we see in the temple that there was no 
no stones were seen. They were covered. They were inlaid with gold, and they were carved with these these beautiful reflections of what it would be like to be in the garden. So what we're seeing here, and this is the point I'd like to make, that each of these descriptive terms of this oracle show a move of God in his creation. We see it, 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 it pictures that he speaks to man with a back and forth communication. He rules over the earth in his garden, in his abode. So when we're talking that as we believers today are wanting to operate as a priest of God, and we're seeing that in the Old Testament, this is the picture, that the Old Testament priest ministered the most closely, the most effectively, and the, the most um, powerfully when he was the high priest in that oracle. And if we as believers understand that this is what we're drawing close to, we're drawing close to God's, God's seat of rulership for this back and forth communication, then it helps us to recognize why the standards and the qualifications are in place. So this, um, this is what was covered in the first part of the chapter with regards to the, the throne of God, the garden of God, and the oracle of God. But the second part of this chapter now, and this is where I'm going to spend the, the majority of the time covering today, is the heavenly reality of the qualifications to go beyond the veil. So, and what we saw in this oracle was that the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place was embroidered with the likeness of the cherubim, okay? So as we go ahead and we look deeply into this, we realize that this is necessary. Understanding this veil is necessary as it is the roadmap, so to speak, um, to continue to move forward into the destination, the most holy place. The second part of this chapter focuses on the veil as it pictures that which separates the most holy place and shows for us God's requirement for his high priest, not the child of God. Again, I want to make this clear. This is not saying that if you're not walking in this, you don't have access to the Lord through the veil. Because that, that wouldn't be true. We're talking, all believers have access to God as children running to their father for help in their time of need. Okay. So, but this is God's requirement for his high priest to minister before him as both king and priest. And to operate in that capacity. Okay. Again, I'd like to point out that this section regarding the veil has been taken from Terry Hill and her insights as recorded on her website, awardindueseason.com. And in the previous webcast, um, I uh, went in a little bit with, uh, you know, the, the Rima word uh, and the testimony of her word being a confirmation with what God was already showing me. But I, I, I stated then and I maintain today 
the exhortation to search out the truths of these interpretations for yourself. These, this section of the book, it, it's always grounded on a, a scripture, but then the interpretation as it is um, expounded upon is a revelation word of knowledge. And I exhort you to take this to the Lord in your prayer chair and to ask him for confirmation and to, if you don't get the confirmation, leave it on the shelf. If this isn't something that the Lord isn't confirming in your heart, then um, then just keep it on the shelf and, and um, seek out for yourself God's direction for your life. But now that being said, I'd like to go forward and talk about what um, the scriptures say and how that has been expounded upon. So what we see here is that God's throne is established in the inner sanctuary, the most holy place, the oracle of God, from where his legal decrees are divinely communicated by conversation through the Yerman right? So this again is the oracle spoken to his people for the execution of his precise and exact will regarding kingdom affairs, there's the throne. All right. This is the most sacred of all places held in highest esteem because God dwells here. And the purpose is being established here of the ruling over the earth by God. All right. And this is not only where God would rule his throne, but it was also known to be his dwelling place as well. So his garden. So now to go beyond the veil was to enter into the very presence of God. So we're going to talk about the veil. The veil was present in the tabernacle because it patterned and reflected heavenly things. Understanding the pattern helps believers to better understand how to approach a holy God. So we've been given the Logos word in 2 Chronicles 3.14 that records for us that when Solomon built the temple, he made a veil of violet, purple, crimson, fine linen, and he worked cherubim on it. Cherubim, by definition, are life-giving creatures. Okay, that's the cherubim. They are life-giving creatures. They have four faces, the face of a man, an ox, a lion, and an eagle. So we see here that, and, and what's going to be explored and developed is that the cherubim give a complete picture, a picture of all the attributes necessary to qualify to enter beyond the veil. They're on the veil. You have to go through the cherubim to enter in. These attributes work together as one. The one head and the four faces unified as one head. Depict Jesus, the Son of Man, Jesus, the head of man, in perfect union with the body. In this picture, with believers, in perfect union with Christ, believers of the body. Okay? Again, Jesus, who, like the lion, took dominion, like the ox, was the sacrifice and the burden bearer, who, as the eagle, ascended on high. Okay, Jesus is 
the patterned sun. And this is something that's going to continue to be developed through word studies, definitions, um, and cross-references as we go through here. But he, this is a reflection of Jesus as the patterned sun, and we're going to talk more about that um, later. But that is also a an understanding and an and, and, and enlarged, I guess, an expanded understanding of Jesus. Remember the, the definition for belief. Belief is everything that was made known about Christ and everything that was made known through Christ. And we talked about this, that believers are really, really good at knowing everything that was made known about Christ. And we talked about this, that he was prophesied to come, that he was the promised seed, that he was born of a virgin, that by his death, you know, propitiation for, for the sins of man was accomplished. On and on, we can say these things. But all that was declared or made known through Christ, this is where we have um, pieces and parts of our understanding you have been missing. And that's what we were talking about all the way through the first section, that Jesus came to declare the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so there's a lot of things in understanding how the kingdom runs and operates that really have never been um, seeded into our understanding. And so as we go through here, one of them is he was the patterned son. Part of who and what Jesus was, was he was both. He was fully God, fully divine, and he was fully man. And he came as God to walk in the fullness of the righteousness of God, while at the same time giving an example. Many people are quick to believe, understand, and receive that Jesus is an example that we're to follow when you're talking about being forgiving, being loving, sharing the gospel. But what God has been deepening our understanding on through the study is that he was a patterned son in, in, all, in, in all respects that he said, you know, when he would refer to himself as the son of man, he was saying, this is me giving an example. Now, we cannot be like Jesus and that we can't die for someone else's sins. Now that's we weren't the, the we weren't the begottens. We're not we're not begotten sons of God. That's Jesus. There are certain aspects where Jesus is in a class all of his own. And we cannot presume to to even come close to to being and representing what's part of that that class. But what God is showing us in scriptures is there are other ways that we are to walk even as Jesus walked. Right? We're to walk as Jesus walked. And that is discussed in a lot of these definitions, such as the word like, be like the master, as, to be as the teacher, to walk, you know, to to look exactly like those in whom you're walking. So as we're seeing the veil here, we're going to weave into this lesson again the, the, the understanding that Jesus patterns for believers certain things and ways that we can walk like him and accomplish things that he accomplished. We cannot accomplish propitiation. We can't accomplish salvation for another man. 
But what we can accomplish, he said, greater works than these will you do. Well, that's something that we can accomplish. He said so. That's what I just like to make clear with regards to Jesus being the pattern son. Now back to the veil. Jesus ascended on high. So we see that Jesus, as the pattern son, sets the example for his church to follow. That would be a definition of forerunner we see in Hebrews, where Jesus was the forerunner for us into a new covenant. So that also speaks in agreement that as a pattern, we are expected to follow the example he set. So in this picture woven into the veil, God declares that which is qualified to come nigh unto him close as in physical proximity. And as the example, Jesus rent his flesh, calling any who would enter in like manner to rend their own flesh in death. And this is this is um, confirmed in the New Testament, putting to death the flesh, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. You have died with Christ. And then it's pictured in the outer court at the brazen altar that we are to offer our bodies a whole and living sacrifice. And that it's to be a burnt offering. A burnt offering was totally consumed. Nothing left. We are to be completely consumed for Christ. And there should be nothing that remains. Okay. Here's another picture. If the death of Jesus was the propitiation for sin, if the death of Jesus is what opened the gates and allowed entrance into the kingdom of God, if it was by the death of Jesus that we are reconciled to God, then why not just put a gun to his head and kill him? Why the carnage of the cross? I, I asked the Lord that question for years. Lord, I don't understand. I would watch passion movies, and I would say, why was that necessary? And finally, as God began to reveal to me what was missing in my understanding, that Jesus was the patterned son, that he set the example. And in many ways, we are to be looking to him and walking as he walked. And what he revealed to me was he was giving you a picture, Debbie. When you come into this covenant, there can be no flesh left remaining on you. That flesh has to be completely stripped away, and that's the picture. We're seeing the death for salvation, and we're seeing pictured that part of that covenant is a stripping away of all flesh such that there is no flesh remaining. Jesus is the pattern sign. So for those who are of like kind as Jesus, in reflecting all that is pictured in the, the cherubim woven on the veil of separation, they begin in the rending and the tearing of their own flesh, the veil, to be qualified to enter into so sacred a space as a high priest of God. So Jesus rent his flesh, which we heard, you know, which we saw in progressive revelation, his flesh, the veil was his flesh, and therefore as believers, we rend our flesh in death. So that is basically the overview. The cherubim has the four heads, and they all picture something. So this is indeed a true creature. I want to be clear on that. There are living creatures. They are cherubim. They have a function, and they do this. But they serve double duty in that their very presence pictures something. 
for us to learn from. And for this reason, they were embroidered upon the veil. So the head of man on this cherubim depicts the patterned son, Jesus, and the believer who looks just like Jesus. Walking in human understanding, we can do that through Christ in compassion and identifying with humanity. Okay? Depicts Jesus as the patterned son as a priest who stands in the gap. Got biblical foundation in Ezekiel 22.30, interceding for others and praying without ceasing, Romans 8.34. The believer puts on the new man, 2 Corinthians 5.17, and this new man is full of eyes, Zechariah 3.9 and 4.10. Why is he full of eyes? Because now the Spirit of God is within him, and this new creation man who has the Holy Spirit in him is described as being full of eyes. And then how does that how does that relate? Well, he has full perception in the spirit as as a one walking as a spiritually minded man, he has perception to look and perceive in every direction. He has sight to look up, to look beyond, to look beneath, between, through. This would be a, a reflection of his discernment, his spiritual understanding. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. He's a life-giving creature. That's the definition of a cherubim. I'm not saying we're cherubim. I'm not saying we become cherubim. I'm saying that this is a reflection, and it pictures, so that we, as in like manner, a life-giving creature. We talked about this in our lesson on our words. Our words are to be life words. We're to replace death with life. We're to replace darkness with light. We're to replace um, conflict with peace. So we um, are life-giving creatures with our words. So it pictures, it pictures that aspect, okay? And then, of course, we see in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that the goal, finally, is um, that we may approach with unveiled face and see with unveiled face the glory of the Lord. The second head on this cherubim is the head of the ox, okay? So the ox signifies in scripture the burden bearer. You know, the ox was a sacrificial offering. It was used in the work of the harvest also to thresh the wheat. So what was going on with this ox? He was being used. It was hard work. It required perseverance. The ox was not permitted to work on the Sabbath, Deuteronomy 5, 14, you know. And, and, as, and all of this, for a discerning student of the word, you would recognize that this is a reflection of the, the walk and the life of a believer. Okay? They were um, trained to submissively receive the yoke of their master. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. God says to, to operate in obedience to his word. And we see this it pictured in the ox. Okay? That they were to, they willingly would come under the divine restraint and carry their master's workload. The ox in the spirit realm, a spiritual understanding carries precious cargo, burdens of prayer, and divine assignments. Okay? We see in Deuteronomy 22.10 that an ox could not be yoked with an ass. What's an ass? One who is stiff-necked, rebellious, obstinate, and wants to go his own way. He refuses to be led or directed. So we see in Isaiah 1.3 that the ox knows his owner, and he receives the divine restraint of the Lord. The ox can also be mistreated or mishandled, abused in the course of his work. 
even as Christ was wounded in the house of his friends. So we can see through these descriptions how there is a, a congruency and a reflection between what these faces are and what they represent and what Jesus did and who he is. We move on to the lion. The lion, the face of the lion, the lion is the king of beasts, even as Jesus is the king of the Jews. Okay? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. What is it? What, 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 what do we know about lions? Well, they take dominion. We see in Joel 3 that a lion roars out of Zion. They're known for, for roaring. They exhibit territorial communication. So we've been called by God to take authority over our domain. So we see that a lion is bold. He's fearless when confronted with the hostile, hostile opposition. We saw in the first section that as believers, you know, we are to operate in warfare and that the kingdom suffers violence and the violent take it by force, bold, fearless. Okay, a lion teaches its cubs how to overwhelm the enemy. We raise up a child in the way that they should go. We see in 1 Chronicles 12, 8, that the mighty men of David are described as having faces of lions. God does have a people who have a fierce countenance before the enemy. He has a people who are alert, vigilant, cautious, courageous, loyal, and they have combat skills. They know how to do war. Okay? So um, this is all part of what pictures, what is being pictured here. Um, again, it's being pictured, but these cherubim are indeed real life-giving creatures. All right. So we see finally with the lion that they know their authority and they do not allow their pride to be, to be defiled by strange seed. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to rule and reign over our dominion, over our domain. We're called to bind up and to cast out any spirit in our domain that's strange seed. You don't belong here. You need to get out. You need to clean out the land, clear the land. The eagle pictures Jesus who ascended on high, and his people who mount up like eagles, Isaiah 40, 31. So as eagles um, are designed to soar, they live in the upper realms. They set their minds on things above, not things below, right? As eagles, they build upward. They live on high in the upper spiritual realm. The eagle has learned how to catch the wind. The wind is synonymous with the Spirit of God. They are both translated pneumo wind he perches and waits then he locks his wings to soar he knows how to navigate the realms of the air by the spirit and he achieves his rest without effort or struggle this is a picture of what we as believers are called to grow up into okay he has been born to soar he's called to flight in the heavens the heavenly realms is his natural domain and therefore, he, sto he soars above the storms and the tribulations of the lower realm. Okay? God has a people who can see with prophetic vision. They operate in the prophetic flow. They perch, and they watch, and they wait. They have learned to recognize the move of the Spirit, having sat in the presence of the Lord. It all goes back to intimacy, and it all goes back to operating as a spiritual man. That all connects. This people of God, they're a type of watchman. Why? Because they're able to see the lower and upper realms. 
okay? After his vision of walking among the lampstands in Revelation 4, then John hears the call of God to come up hither. So God was calling John to bring his perception out of the lower candlestick realm of the church to the heavenly aspect of these earthly things. You know, so that's all part of what's being pictured here as the believers to grow up into this, as believers are matured, that they can walk through the veil. They've rent their flesh. They've gotten rid of anything that's superfluous on them, the qualification of the priest. So what's on them? What What's a fleshly, um, a, a fleshly influence? Well, that's superfluous. Well, they've stripped it. Even as Christ stripped his flesh to picture this for us. And now there, that is a part of what would be qualifying them to enter in the veil. Okay. So we see here that they've been given a, a, a heavenly aspect of earthly things. If you read the book of Isaiah, he talks about his righteous, his righteous man that he's looking for. He will not judge by what his eyes see nor make decisions by what his ears hear. This is, again, a, um, a qualification that we want to grow up into. We don't look around and see what's going on. We're seeing perhaps strife in the home, or we're seeing an oppression of um, addiction, and we pray, and we go to war against that, and then we continue to see that there, there seems to be struggles. We don't judge by what we're seeing. We're judging by the word of God. That's the heavenly aspect of earthly things. Lord, I have prayed. Lord, I've gone to war. Lord, I have in my prayer chair bound up the enemy. I've spoken repentance. I know that victory is mine, and I'm going to stand on that, and that's what I'm going to believe. That's an example of having a heavenly aspect of earthly things. I don't look at what's going on right in front of my eyes and decide that that's the answer or that's the truth. God's word is the truth. And his word is the answer. The eagle shows us a picture of operating like this. The eagle symbolizes power, war, liberty, think kingdom of God. He's portrayed as a deliverer in ancient times. We are called to operate in warfare so that through prayer, we can, um, through healing and deliverance, right? Deliver, deliverance. It's not us that's delivering. It's Christ who does the deliverance. But because his people know to ascribe um, to what he has equipped them with and to appropriate the situation, they do. So their hands, he says, you lay hands on the sick and they will recover. We appropriate our hands to the sickness. And therefore, we partner with God in bringing deliverance. The power of the God does it. The power of the Spirit does it. And we lay hands. We invite him in. In times of famine, eagles are known to be carrying food to the nest. Okay? The eagle is a predator of the serpent. So I found extremely appropriate. The people of God are called to trample on scorpions and serpents. And over all the powers of the enemy. Eagles have excellent vision. They are known for mounting up. And they picture a people who are called up hither and who respond. The life of an eagle represents living a life of rest in the spirit 
but yet are not inactive. And this brings to mind the definition of upon, the Holy Spirit upon you. And that word upon carries the connotation of rest and motion combined. The Spirit of God is easily seen, pictured in the eagle in all of these different ways. So um, this life of rest, but not inactive, rather watching and waiting for the Spirit of God to move. Okay. They, those who operate as the ego, they operate in and from the perspective of the upper realms. They don't function in the lower realms. They see them, they recognize them, and they operate above them. The ego's wings speak of mobility, and they speak of humility because they are a covering. And they have the um, ability then to mount up. Eagles live in the wilderness, and yet it's a retreat to them. So to recap, the cherubim point to the ministry and the nature of Jesus, his kingship, his dominion, his authority, and his rule. Picture the potential of every believer if he would rent his own flesh as Christ rent his. That he too may walk in the fullness pictured in these life-giving creatures. That's the call. If he endeavors to reflect, even as the patterned son, these attributes required by God, then he is qualified and he may enter through the veil and into the most holy of all places. This company of believers will begin to step into their full inheritance as living stones, being fashioned into a holy habitation for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. That's 1 Peter 2.5. And to speak the oracles of God, 1 Peter 4.11. Again, this is a picture, the cherubim picture for us, the attributes that when cultivated in, in our lives, help to transform us into the royal priesthood of 1 Peter 2.9. So that is the picture of the veil. And so I'm not saying, and I want to make sure that this is clear, that we all must be cherubim. That would be a corruption of the word. What I'm saying is a cherubim were woven into the veil of separation to picture a spiritual heavenly truth. And that is that the oracle of God is his throne room. It is his habitation among his people and qualifications to enter in as a priest of God are in play here. That that which was intended at creation is being restored. God is looking for his royal priest to enter into the throne room, not as a child in this scenario, but even as one of the mighty men of David. And this picture provided by God of the cherubim is the equipping to help his people grow up into mature viceroys who can and will co-rule and reign with him in their ordained capacity. So I'd like to go back and just note the congruency. This became so clear to me as I was walking through this. It was amazing as the picture just began to explode in my mind. Note the congruency between the qualifications of the priesthood and what is pictured in the cherubim. So if we look at the, um, the ox, what's the, the qualification is Leviticus 21:18 No one who has a blemish shall approach to offer the bread of their god. Well, as we're trying to grow up into this, we see pictured in the ox. The ox was um an appropriate burnt offering. 
but it had to be without blemish. <coughs> so um, we see the ox there without blemish, and we see that is also part of the picture. Another requirement for the priesthood, no blind man shall approach. So that, again, would picture the eagle. As we see here, under the qualifications that no blind man shall approach, what we see is that um, that they have no spirit of revelation knowledge. Their perception is darkened. They have no knowledge or enlightening of the eyes. And what we see with the eagle is they have the perception, the seven spirits. They have spiritual perception to see in, around, up, through, over. All right. They are, they have the perception born of operating from the upper realms. And we're called to do that in Isaiah. Don't judge by what your eyes see. Don't judge by what, what your ears hear. That would be a lower realm way of walking. So we look at the qualification, no lame man shall approach a service priest. Well, the ox, they did the work of the harvest. The, if you are operating in your mind as, okay, I'm trying to aspire to cultivate into my identity these things pictured that I might also, as a pattern son, look like this. It's a, it's a process. Right, and it, it's something that we're endeavoring to work towards. But the ox, if he were lame, would not be a worker in the harvest. Under this, no lame man shall approach. We talked about our spiritual legs must be strong. Think ox, steadfast. Think ox. We must be able to move forward and forge ahead in progression of righteousness. Think ox, a spiritual lame person must depend on someone else to carry him. So we see the congruency that another qualification, no flat nose. Well, we talked about a flat nose, you're lacking discernment. But when we look at the eagle, we see that the eagle has the perception, the perceptive eyes. And he's got, with this perception of the eyes with the seven spirits that he can see above, below, beneath, around, through. What is this? Well, this is a reflection of his discernment. It's, it's just, just discerning. So when you're operating as an eagle, then by default, you don't have the flat nose. And you grow up in discernment so that you don't have the flat nose. You are slowly acquiring the attributes of the eagle. We see... Uh, we saw nothing superfluous. You know, we even saw Jesus. He rent his flesh. No, nothing remaining. No broken foot. Both the ox and the eagle. Okay. So with the the um, broken foot, it talks about he falls easily. This person is continually up. Then he's down. But we know with an ox that he is steadfast, strong, firm. And we know with an eagle that they navigate the heights of the kingdom. They're not up and down. They're not operating in a manner that's unstable. Okay? We see that one with a broken foot is unable to navigate the heights of this kingdom. 
For this reason, he is found in the lower realms of the elementary teachings. The eagle, he soars above the lower realms. He's aware of what's going on down there. He sees what's going on down there. And by virtue of this, he can bring intercession. He can bring warfare prayer. But he's not caught up in the muck and the mire of it. His feet are not walking through the sludge of the swamp of the lower realms. Another qualification, no broken hand. This is talking about being able to wield the sword in battle. And we look, and the lion, the lion is that which takes dominion. And the lion is victorious. He's bold. He's fearless in battle. So one who's operating with the boldness of a lion, then by virtue of that, he's not operating with a broken hand. So no hunchback, one who's bent over, focus on the lower realms. Well, if you are operating as an eagle, you have a focus on upper and lower realms, and you are focusing on the heights of the kingdom. No dwarf. Again, this picture is the eagle. A dwarf cannot understand or perceive the purposes of God. He cannot reach the heights of the kingdom by reason of his low stature. He's bent over. All right? And if you're operating as an eagle, I think it's pretty self-explanatory how you know that would um, grow up and mature believer not to be the dwarf. No blemished eye. The ox, uh, it pictures the ox because um, the blemished eye are those who are double-minded and they operate in syncretism, both in carnal and spiritual. Well, the ox knows its owner. The ox submits to the owner. The ox is submissive to the direction of the owner. The ox is not the ass. He's not trying to, to veer off the path. Because he's submissive to the will of his master. So, and no blemish die. He's like the eagle in that he has perception. He's got the supernatural perception of the eagle to see and understand the fullness of the kingdom and its, its move. You know, as he moves with the spirit, he's in step with God. So, he, you know, his, his eyes are focused. So as we go through here, what we're seeing is that there is a congruency with these qualifications in the cherubim. It's, it's just one is confirming the other. So i just like to share that when all of this was being brought, I understand. If this is the first time you're hearing this, you're probably thinking this is just fant too fantastic. Fantastic and prob probably not a good sense. <laughs> this is just way, way outside of anything that I've ever heard or been taught. And um, I just wanted to say that as I was pondering this and going to this in prayer, and God was deepening my understanding, what I began to recognize is that everything he was showing me and everything that he was sharing with me in, these, in, in, in the, the lessons as I was learning them at the time did not replace anything that God had previously taught 
regarding unity, authority, but rather he was building a deeper and broader understanding of the of what he had already begun to build upon with regards to the sanctity and the priesthood. And so I began to recognize these things. You know, this this qualifications of the priesthood, no dwarf, no, all these things are all in, in, in the in the manuscript, in the book. And had the qualifications of the priest and the pick what's pictured in the cherubim. But this is not something that, oh, well, I'm not this, so I'm disqualified. How unfair of God to create a standard I can't keep. This is a journey. We don't automatically get saved and arrive here. That's the what pictures the tabernacle layout. That as we start in the outer court at the inception phase, some people are happy to stay in the outer court. Some, ha- some people are just happy to take what, what they have of their faith at the inception of their faith and that that's just where they're going to stay. Other people, they have a desire to, to, to grow and to learn and to become deeper in their intimacy. And so as, as they journey, then they begin to walk more fully in what is pictured in the, the lampstand. The, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as the oil is poured into the top of the lampstand, picturing the oil of the Spirit being poured into the top. The, you know, the, being the light of the world, being a light, being filled with the Spirit. We talked about all of that. It's a journey. And then eventually, what I find and what God is revealing is as believers, we're going to find ourselves before the veil. The journey continues. And this is what all of what we're talking about, these podcasts is all about, is that as we grow in our intimacy with, with the Lord, we get in our prayer care and we say, God, what is it I don't know I don't know? What's, what, is a, what is an obstacle to growing in intimacy with you? God will show us things in our lives that are disqualifying factors. He'll show us things in our lives that we can build into our lives to grow up into walking as a, as a lion. Of the tribe, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and if we want to look like Him, then we, as a lion, will take dominion. We will not tolerate the enemy in the camp. And we see in Amos that there's wolves in the pasture, and they're ripping apart the the, the lambs, and they have a leg here and an arm here, just ripped to pieces. We're going to operate like a lion for those uh, for those people of God that want to operate like a lion. You will not find wolves in their pasture. These would not be numbered among the worthless shepherds who allow the wolves among the sheep to bring destruction. And God will show us these things. He grows us up, and that's that's his call. He loves it. It's exciting. He's all about restoration and restoring his people to full stature. And what as I walked into this, I realized God was was growing me up into these understandings, and He was saying, "There's so much more." that I want to show you. And as you continue to walk in obedience and receive what he's showing you, then you grow up into maturity in these things. And what I found was that as I began to walk more in greater fullness of what I was shown by the Lord in my authority, in my identity, in my ambassadorship, then by default, 
I began to see these attributes of the qualifying predators of the priest and the picture, uh, the picture character traits and attributes of the cherubim. I began to say, wait, there's already a little bit of this in my, in my life being woven into my identity. But then as God began to show me these qualifications of the priesthood, I began to be intentional with attending. I, you know, I qualified for every disqualifying factor. I was idolatrous. I had wounds sustained from ministry. I was a hunchback, completely absorbed and consumed with the lower realms. I was a dwarf, not growing up in my faith. I was double visioned. I had a blemished eye. In a lot of ways, I was blind. We all, this is all of our starting points. That's, that's, the, that's the point. But then as um, I began to look at these pictures and investigate these qualifications and be intentional to weave these into how I would think and how I would respond and what I would let my mind dwell on, then I began you know, to become, I said, I'm going to look like the cherubim. I'm going to be done. I am going to navigate the heights. I'm living in the heights. I'm done. I'm done being ensnared and entangled in all of these lower realms, swamps. I'm tired. You can't swim in a swamp and come out smelling like a rose. I don't care how much you want to be, you know, smelling wonderful. When you're swimming in it, you're going to smell like it. And I wanted to be done. I said, I'm going, you know what, Lord, you've given me a picture. I'm going to try to live my life just like this eagle. So I took that that portion of the, the Rima revelation interpretation of Terry. Nothing in that conflicted with anything you have ever shown me, Lord. So I'm going to navigate the heights. I'm going to keep my eyes focused on the heights. I'm going to keep my eyes focused on Jesus. I'm not going to come entangled in, in the lower realms. I'm going to be a predator of the serpent. I'm going to look with the eyes of the Spirit of God. I'm going to walk in discernment. Well, as I began to be intentional to cultivate that in my life because God revealed that these are things that could be done, I began to see that my identity and my authority in Christ became deeper and more deeply rooted in who I was just in my daily walk. It worked together. So um, I find that all these things, they, um, they were the equipping for me, and they still are. I have not arrived yet. I can go through all of these things in this section with qualifications of the cherubim, and I can tell you areas of my life I'm still immature in my walk in, in ways. I've not arrived. I'm endeavoring. Okay? And, but this equips me to grow up into the full stature of who God has um, in his word shown me it's his intention that I be in my authority, in my identity as an ambassador. Why? For him, for his kingdom. So um, that's, um, that's just really what I want to share with regards to all of this. Um, just some things that I know could be difficult for someone who's never walked into this before is the whole idea that Jesus as a patterned son pictures things that I can be walking in that perhaps before I would have thought 
I was unable to because I was unaware that this was the call and I had been equipped. We've covered all of this in the first section, but it's this whole idea of the pattern sign. This is going to continue to grow through the book, and we're going to see how this, as part of our foundational understanding of all that was made known through Christ, this is the foundational stepping stones that everything else is going to be built upon as we continue. If we don't believe that he was the pattern son, then there's going to be times where we're going to think, well, I don't have to be that. I don't have to do that because I'm just a human and I'm weak and I'm frail. And what did you say, Adam? I'm a screw up. Yeah. It's, um, it's thinking of, you know, Oh, I'm weak. Like you said, I'm weak. I'm a sinner. I'm always going to to make mistakes. I'm I'm constantly going to be uh, in, immersed in sin, you know. And that's actually not what we're called to be at all, because we're called to be the opposite. And just being aware of that, because the bar is set. Jesus is the pattern son. He is the bar that's been set. That's what we should be looking like, striving for, and becoming. Of course, what happens is man's like, oh, well, I can never be Jesus. I'm always going to screw up compared to Jesus. He, he never screwed up. And unfortunately, that mindset is only going to let you grow so much. And it's unfortunate because then that's those are those people that get destroyed for a lack of knowledge. You know, it's, it's by understanding who you are in Christ, the authority that he's been given, and then taking all of those things and all those characteristics that, that you mentioned and, and striving, not striving, it's more resting in him, in his promises, and in that place of intimacy. And in that place of intimacy, in that oracle, you start looking like him, becoming him, you start hearing from him, and you start doing the things that he's telling you to do, and you're living the will that he wants for your life out into the world. That's really kind of what it is. A lot of people, they don't understand who they are in Christ and what they've been called to do, they're just saying, oh, it's a ticket to get to heaven. And that's not, it's not at all what it is. Like it's, it's not Jesus' death allowed you to get into the kingdom of God, but that kingdom of God is reigning now in you so that people can see what that kingdom looks like, what Jesus looks like, what God looks like in you. If you're not walking that way, you become a hypocrite. And uh, like you stated, and, and I, I will be stating the exact same thing is like I was what you were mentioning, like, you know, we're uh, with the crooked nose and the all, all of the quick characteristics of, of what a priest, um, you know, shouldn't be uh, the disqualifications. That was me. I was disqualified and I wasn't aware of it. I thought, well, this is normal because I'm looking at all the other Christians, but I'm not looking at Jesus. And to Jesus, it's not normal. To Jesus, he's looking at us. He's like, I see myself in you, but you don't see your potential in me. And and if we stay in him, now anything is possible. But in my eyes, I just thought that it was never attainable. And he's actually saying the opposite. He's saying that I've given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. I bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now it's a matter of time to now go and and keep all of my commandments and walk in my statue or else you're going to get destroyed. You know, you're going to have a blemished eye. You're going to have scurvy. You're going to be hunchback. You're going to be dwarf and you're going to be disqualified. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean disqualifying from the heaven, from heaven and, and from God's kingdom, but it, it, it does hinder our walk here on earth. So. Exactly. Exactly. And 
um, you know, we don't want to, one of the things that I was thinking as we were going through here is it can be really discouraging if the focus is on, oh, well, I'm disqualified for all these things. And the focus becomes being disqualified. And that's what I want to be sure to address. The focus isn't becoming disqualified. The focus is this is, these are disqualifying factors. So you know what not to be and you know what not to do. And uh, again, that place of intimacy is where God will show us what disqualifying factors are in our lives because he's rooting for us. He's on our team. He wants us to win. He's doing everything he can to get us into that oracle. And through this place of intimacy, he'll bring revelation. And one of the things that um, becomes very clear, and you and I have talked about this before, is to be raised to full stature. We keep talking about being grown to full stature, I do, into maturity, you know, to accomplishing these standards and these qualifications. But the picture of the clay pots, I go back to this, that um, those stone at the, at the wedding feast of Canaan, there were six clay pots and they were empty. And Jesus said, go fill them with water and then it turned to wine. And how do we grow up into the fullness of the maturity? How do we grow up into the fullness of the qualification? How do we grow up into the fullness of what's been pictured in this cherubim? We be empty. We can do nothing. We begin to recognize, I can never be this. I can never do this. That's the first step in the right direction. You begin to empty yourself. Lord Jesus, can you do this in me? But we have to want it. We have to know to want it. We have to be, then when Jesus says, yes, I can do that in you, but you have to quit watching this TV show. You have to quit idolizing this hobby. You have to, okay, I'll quit idolizing this hobby if you would grow me up into this area of um, getting rid of the superfluous in my life, right? So, I mean, it's not that we don't have any responsibility, but this is not something that could be achieved with the carnal strength and carnal endeavor. It's a spiritual work. So when we go to the Lord, and we empty ourselves. And that's what I do in my church every day. I just empty myself. There's nothing left of me. I, I have nothing to offer. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to come fill me to accomplish the heart of Jesus and the work of Jesus or to recognize what's grieving Jesus. And so this, again, is achieved. The emptier we are of ourselves, the more of Jesus can be poured in. If those clay pots, clay, man, six, the number of man, if they had, if they, if they had not been emptied, they could not have held as, as much water and there would not have been as much wine. And so that, that to me was an encouragement that I can continue to grow up into greater and greater maturity as long as I continue to empty myself, empty myself, empty myself, and ask Jesus, Jesus, will you do this in me? And he says, I will do this in you, but you've got to quit being offended. You have to decide and be intentional. You're not going to be offended. You're not going to be causing strife. You're not going to be walking in idolatrous behavior. You're not going to be trading my time out for something of lesser value. And, you know, so we do those things. 
that's that's what we can do. And then Jesus grows us up into the spiritual. You know, we are intentional to get rid of the fleshly aspect of who we are. And as we are intentional to get rid of the fleshly aspect of who we are with the help of Jesus, that he fills us up into the fullness of the spiritual reality of what we can become. No, it's really good. And um, I know we're out of time and you done, have done a fantastic job at uh, kind of expounding on the idea of this oracle, this throne room, and this garden of God, and then really getting into those details of what's what it means by going beyond the veil. And um, I just like to thank you, uh, and I'm looking forward, and I'm really looking forward to uh, the next chapter, which is chapter 13, and that is on the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ. I know that you hear in church that, oh, we're all the bride of Christ, and uh, on Fortunately, we may think that, but there is some qualifications that go along with being the bride. And I know that we're going to probably uh, get into those uh, details for the next episode. With that all being said, thank you so much and have a great rest of your day, Debbie. Thank you. Goodbye, Adam. <laughs>